In this episode, renowned entrepreneur and chief product officer at Adobe, Scott Belsky, shares wisdom on navigating the messy middle and how to turn ideas into reality. Get ready for a power-packed conversation filled with inspiration and practical advice. Let's dive in. Scott, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Now, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, listen, I was going through your website, and right off the bat, I read something that I thought was very interesting. And it says, uh, it's not about ideas, and it's about making ideas happen. How do we do that? <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, my frustration with the creative world and the whole, you know, buzzword of innovation is it's just uh, littered with uh, the carcasses of great ideas long forgotten. I feel like we get in love with ideas and we oftentimes go from idea to idea to idea, oftentimes abandoning the execution of any one idea you know, to its full potential. And so my passion has always been that journey of what it actually takes to push an idea to completion and realizing the full potential of it. I think it has to do with harnessing the forces of community to hold you accountable to give you feedback on your idea, to pick it apart, to poke holes in it, to remind you of it when you get distracted and move on to something else. I think it has to do with organization and how organized we are, the tools and tricks that we use to capture things and put connect the dots over the months and years that pass so that all the building blocks are there when we need them. And, uh, and then I think it has to do with leadership. You know, it's the story we tell ourselves. It's the, the narrative we tell others about our idea, about why it matters. And getting a team to stick together long enough to figure it out is oftentimes the co competitive advantage of the best startups in the world. So the problem is not the idea, it's the execution of the idea. But now you mentioned a very interesting points, but let's perhaps let's talk about someone who's just starting. You know, an entrepreneur, it's a person, one person do it all. How do you keep yourself not motivated, but really organized in a way that you can execute and see that idea come through? Well, I think that organizational skills and creative skills, some people look at them as opposites. And our challenge is to see them as something that actually really goes together. I like to think about the equation of creativity times organization equals the impact you'll make with your ideas. And so if you have a hundred on the creativity, but zero on organization, it's a product, not a sum. So you'll have zero impact. Um, if you have 50 creativity, but two on organization, you'll have a hundred impact. So it's important to think about this. And there's a controversial suggestion that I'm making which is that if we compromise some of our creative tendencies, we actually might make more of an impact with the ideas that we've already got. And I think there are a lot of great examples throughout history of very prolific artists and creative teams that have done this. You look at an author like James Patterson, who claims to write seven novels at once with a team of people helping him. He churns out books he has published more, more books than, uh, or sold more books than Random House's public books, published books combined. And, uh, and this is someone who literary critics might critique 
him for a lack of originality in plots and characters and that sort of thing, but has shown us that if you have a little maybe more emphasis on the organization side, you'll have more output. Um, Thomas Kincaid, he's a, mm. he's a painter with the, or, uh, who, who's since deceased, who still has a gallery in every resort town in America, it seems. And this is someone who, again, you know, developed a organizational model behind his art and became a very prolific and widely recognized artist, regardless of what you might think of his work. And so as creative people, how do we make sure that we, in some ways, suppress our crazy creative tendencies to have more impact on the things that matter most to us? Now, the crazy tendency that you just mentioned, some creative people are just, you know, they're wired that way. Do you feel like is it, to learn the discipline is something that you need to bring someone to help you with this, like a team member, maybe an executive, or can you somehow, you know, develop some sort of, of uh, um, technique or ability, a schedule, so you can put in a, a certain amount of time dedicated for certain specific tasks? Well, two things that I, I talk about with some depth and analysis in, in my book, Making Ideas Happen, um, are relevant here. You know, number one is that I believe that we are all either dreamers, doers, or what I call incrementalists. Um, dreamers are the people who wake up every morning thinking about, oh, what new thing can I do today? What new thing can I tell my team? What new thing can I bring to this project or this conference we're putting on? Like new, 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 more and more and more ideas. That's what gets the dreamers super excited every day. The doers are more like the Debbie Downers of the world. You know, they're mm -hmm. like, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that now. Or we don't have the budget for this. Or we should put that on the parking lot and come back to it later. They're constantly grounding us with no, you know, like let's, let's pace ourselves. And, um, and you can imagine the dreamers and doers are sometimes a little head to head and, uh, and have some friction, but it's a healthy, healthy tension in a team to have. The incrementalists have this innate ability to rotate from dreamer mode to doer mode to dreamer mode to doer mode. Their problem though, is they start too many things and they never focus on one thing long enough to really make it scale over time and have the greatest impact possible. And so the point is, is that whether you are a doer, a dreamer, or an incrementalist, you need to round yourself off with people with the opposite tendencies. And so really great partnerships over the course of history, the greatest fashion designers of the world, Calvin Klein, Ralph Lauren, a lot of these people all had a number two. They all had somebody who was behind the scenes as an operations leader, always grounding them, always that doer mentality to make sure that they created a profitable enterprise and they could actually pace themselves and focus on things long enough to push them to full potential. Um, so that's one mentality to have is ensuring you have the partnerships and you build the team and the chemistry that values the doers as well as the dreamers in different points of time. And, um, you know, a lot of creative teams only want to hire creatives and you, you have dreamers hiring dreamers hiring dreamers because their criteria is that I just want to hire people that are fun to have a beer with. And then you end up this like crazy, you know, orgy of idea generation and intoxicated chemistry of creativity and nothing ever actually gets done. So you want to avoid that. The second thing I was going to share um, that I talk about in, in the book is about, um, about the three sort of metaphorical rooms that actually were originally physical rooms under Walt Disney 
in the early days of Disney. And Disney had kind of three rooms in the process of developing Disney. The first room was sort of the ideation room, and it was just the euphoric space where any possibility, any idea was welcome. There was nothing that was crazy. And it was just like a real wild experience in there where the dreamers really took hold. The second room was where the doers were in charge and every idea was attacked. And it was all about poking holes and critiquing and being you know, really critical about whatever ideas came from the first room. And then the third room was the reconciliation room where the dreamers and doers were tasked with reconciling the pluses and the minuses, the ideas and the liabilities, and coming out with a sort of balanced view on what we were going to do first. And so whether you have that physical room of space in your team or just metaphorical, I think you should think about that in your own ideation process. Now, you had a large team as well. You have a lot of responsibilities. Is that something that you try to implement in the company? Yeah, it's something that Certainly in the early days of Behance, we had a process called concepting where we would develop our products um, in, a, uh, in a regular four-hour weekly meeting where just the designers and the product leaders would get together and brainstorm and have that sort of ideation process without the engineers in the room who were typically the ones who were always focused on the cost of implementing something and the efficiencies of doing it in certain ways and not other ways. And I found it a very healthy balance to have the designers and product leaders empowered in a space during the process. And then once we came to a vision of what we wanted to do, we would then invite the engineers and they, we would give them the power and they had to accept what we were doing. And so they could keep rejecting it and pushing back, pushing it back into concepting as a way of, uh, of forcing us to then have another process around it. And so that was, uh, that was sort of our equivalent in the modern day of these rooms. Where do you like, like all those three groups, where do you fit in? Where do you think you are? Yeah, I think I'm an incrementalist in the sense that I go from dreamer mode to doer mode, dreamer mode to doer mode. And I think my biggest risk or liability weakness is that I do create too many things. And then the question is, do they ever reach their fullest potential or not? And so in my career, I've always rounded myself off with dreamers and doers based on where I am at um, to ensure that we reach the full scale and possibility of some of these projects. Um, and that's just, uh, you know, and that's something I've learned about myself over the years. So at what point, because I think it's an important thing to people realize where, what the three categories were you at, at what point did you realize, you know, this is who I am, this is my weakness, this is my strength. And, and now I need to start working from that point. Was it something that you developed early in your life when you were like, you know, teenager in, or in college or was it later on in your career? I think it was, uh, I think it was probably in my early startup days in 2006, 2007, um, as I hired different people on the team, I started to realize the benefits of having these different people around me. You know, I um, philosophically understood why it's important to have a very diverse team, but not until I had the benefits of having one, you know, did I truly understand the advantages of having an extraordinarily different group 
of extraordinary people. Now, your latest book, the the middle mess, yeah, the mess in the, the mess middle. I'm yeah. very fascinated by that concept because the beginning of any company, you know where it is, you know what it looks like. It's pretty obvious, and at the end. People usually have a tendency to what's happened as well. If you sold a company or you close, whatever it is, it's pretty well defined. But everything else is in the middle. So how do we organize that mess? Right. Well, I think, um, you know, all of my projects are typically inspired by some sense of frustration. And the messy middle was no exception. The messy middle was inspired by just my frustration with how obsessed everyone is with the starts and finishes of the journey. Everyone loves talking about the romantic early days of a new idea and a new startup materializing. And people love talking about the exit, whether it's a successful exit or whether it's a unsuccessful disaster. That's where all the press and fanfare and focus goes. And so I was very interested in this messy middle journey that people typically don't chronicle. And I wanted to deconstruct that journey. And I wanted to think about what were the key parts of it. And it really came down to endurance and optimization. Enduring these lows along the way, you know, if it's a very volatile journey of many ups and downs, how do people sort of tolerate the downs? Um, how, do te how do teams become stronger and more resilient amidst adversity? What are the hacks that teams use to keep the team together, to still continue to build culture, and to, uh, to continue making progress when it feels like you're not making any progress. So I really wanted to understand and, and chronicle all the insights and best practices of some of the best teams I admire in during that journey. And then I also wanted to tackle optimization. How do teams optimize how they work? How do they optimize how products work? And, uh, and how do leaders kind of optimize their own their, their own leadership selves. And so that that's what the book is about. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I think that the endurance section is a hard one to get through because it's really real. You know, one of the pieces of feedback I get from the from readers is like, oh, man, that endurance section that like, that was gut wrenching. But <laughs> it's important for us to, to know, you know, that that is what it's like. It's extraordinarily hard. And, um, and we need to talk about it in order to be able to conquer it. Can you give me a couple of examples of hacks that you think it's important for people to practice when they're going through some of those difficult moments? Yeah. On the, um, so when you're thinking about that messy middle and you're thinking about the really tough periods, um, one thing I talk about is the need to short circuit your reward systems because when we live in a, uh, you know, the normal world, not trying to make something extraordinary happen, but just having a regular nine to five job, we are motivated and incentivized by a weekly salary and by a bonus at the end of the year and by the accolades of our existing customer base and the growth metrics. And, but when you're starting something new, when you're on an extraordinary journey of building something from nothing, none of those metrics really exist. And they may not exist for, for years. I liken it to the metaphor of driving your team across country with the windows blacked out in the back seat and your team going stir crazy in the back of the car, 
not having any idea of whether they're making progress or not. And the only way to get your team to survive that journey is to narrate it for them, to help them know, okay, we're in some traffic right now. Oh, the traffic is opening up. Oh, we just crossed state lines. And now we're, you know, now we're on this bridge. Now we're on this highway. The more you tell the story of the journey, the more t- the team is able to tolerate it. And so I talk a lot about the, 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 the importance of narration as a hack to survive the journey in its most difficult times. I also talk about making sure you have things to celebrate when you feel like you're making no progress. I talk about some of the research around progress begetting progress and how we have to feel like we're making progress in order to be making progress. Um, and, uh, and so what sorts, of, what sorts of rewards do you set up when there aren't the traditional ones at your fingertips? And uh, I gave some fun examples of my own personal experience. At Behance, we did all kinds of fun things during our first five years of bootstrapping, which were a mm. very difficult period of time for the company. We used to do things like, um, we had these things called slap bets, where we would make little bets that people would have to do certain things when we reached certain milestones. So I was a, always a vegetarian and the engineering team decided that when we reached 100,000 users, I had to eat chicken off of a particular engineer's fork. And that just became like a funny thing that um, helped build the culture and became like a celebratory milestone, at least for a few of us, not me, when, uh, <laughs> when we reached that goal. You know, another funny one was we used to always type in Behance into Google and it always used to say, do you mean Enhance? Do you mean Enhance? And Behance, the the term Behance was a made up term that Google considered a mistake. And so our goal, before we had a profitable enterprise and mass numbers of users and growth metrics and everything else, we just wanted to no longer be a mistake. And so we did all these blog posts with link backs and we got more and more portfolios published on Behance with blog links to those portfolios from third-party websites. We did all the things that we felt would be required to not only make us succeed, but also just make us no longer a mistake. And lo and behold, in 2000, late 2007, uh, maybe early 2008, we came in and Behance was no longer a mistake. And it was just like amazing (laughs) celebratory moment and then I like to recall that I think six months later, Beyonce became super popular and we became a mistake again. Um, so, you know, these sorts of things are ebbs and flows, but you have to, as the leader, you have to come up with what those things are. You're short circuiting the reward system to keep the team together and engaged long enough to figure it out. And that's something that you took it on you to figure that out, to be the, the, the leader, but also the motivator, the guy driving the energy forward with the team. Yeah. Um, at what point with Behance is a good example, did you realize that you, you talked to your team and you go, okay, I think we're going to be okay. We're, we're going to make this through. We're going to be fine. We're, as you mentioned, with, after the, before the growth and, and other success, at what point do you feel like, okay, we have our head above water now and we might just make it? I think that there were a few points where, you know, in, in the Behance project, um, I've, I started to feel really confident. I mean, the first was, the first was when I would come in in the mornings 
and see all these projects that were published overnight by people in other parts of the world. And that feeling of the network being leveraged and used by people who you don't know all around the world, you know, that was like, I was like, wow, there's something here. I would say the second was when we started getting anecdotal feedback from people who got jobs on Behance. Hmm. And that was really, I was like, wow, someone's life was changed. You know, someone's career uh, became better as a result of this platform. There is something here. Because if that one person feels that way, then a million people could feel that way, or 10 million people could feel that way. And, uh, you know, now there's more than 40 million professionals on Behance. And it's still those stories that really make the team most, you know, proud of what we've done. It's, it's you know, when you feel like someone's leveraged your technology and it's changed their lives in some way, shape or form, there's just nothing that beats that. Uh, and then the third, I would say, is when we started to really pay our own bills, you know, and we started to get to this break even level as a company. And I was like, oh, this could also be a viable business. Like I was not sure about whether, whether that could happen or not. Um, and that was, uh, you know, that was the third, I would say, moment where I was like, okay, this could really work. Now, if I flip the coin on you, at what point, is there ever a point that you're on top of the world, you're feeling super confident, and then the rug is pulled under your feet? Oh, sure. I think the, um, I think that you have that, on, you have that experience as an entrepreneur when you lose a deal. You know, in the early days, we were subsidizing the cost of the platform with sponsorships. And I hated doing that, you know, going out to these agencies that represented these car brands or beverage brands and trying to pitch a sponsorship deal and, you know, and doing all this handholding to get some form of an advertising experience, you know, in, in Behance, which, you know, I, I didn't really love doing in the product either. Uh, and then sometimes these would happen and sometimes they would go dormant and sometimes you'd get shut down and you have to just get back up again. So sales is such a huge part of entrepreneurship. Hopefully you're selling something you love selling. In the case of selling sponsorship deals, I, I did not love selling that. Um, and then I also think that when you lose people on a team and uh, sometimes there are people that were really ready to move on and you're kind of happy that they're moving on. But sometimes you lose someone who's really crucial to you, but they have a life change or something is different and they just feel like they need to do something different. And fortunately in Behance, we didn't really have many of those our first seven years. But then um, as people just moved on and had to move for various things, you know, we had some of that and it was always very hard. But I have learned as a leader that you have to turn those, those challenges into an opportunity for the team. Because every time you lose a really high performing leader, if they were really good, that means that there are other people on their team who are probably ready to take the, take the reins. And when you lose a very senior person, it's always opportunity for others to get the spotlight. And, and you retain the next generation of leaders by losing the current generation of leaders. And so you have to think about that as an opportunity, not just a regret. When you look at the, the generation of leaders that you just mentioned, the one that came before and the currently one, is that like a, a, a shift, a mind change shift and a mindset differently or it's pretty much kind of the same way, the same concept? 
or things are just you know, people progressively changing the way they see things, the way they see business, how they want to operate? Well, listen, everyone has a different set of experiences they come with and a different set of best practices. And it's what keeps a business engaging for everyone is this lifeblood of people. And it's, it's a really healthy transition because you don't want the product to be about one team. You want the product to outlive the team. You know, ultimately, if you're building something meaningful in the world, you want it to transcend the group of people that built it. So I think that's a, um, that's like a moment of, of pride, um, you know, for, for founders. Uh, it's, it's hard though, right? It's hard to let go of your baby. You know, it's hard to entrust new people with new ideas, but that's part of how things survive the course of time. You have to do it. How do you feel like you personally has involved by being able to let go of your baby and you start tackling new challenges? Yeah, well, for me, it's kept my learning curve steep. And I guess I've always had a fear of being able to only do one project, you know, and being limited in my scope. And so I've always desired more challenges and, uh, and more responsibilities. And, you know, some people don't like that, but that's just what motivates me. Um, and, uh, you know, there, but there's no right or wrong. You know, some people mm. love to become experts in one thing and continue to stay as an independent contributor and, and be uh, better and better and better of a crafts person in, in one area. Um, but the, the bottom line is that we all have to feel challenged in order to do our best work. And so it's, uh, it's important to do that. And sometimes that means moving on. Sometimes that means taking on more or adding a new, uh, you know, a new vector to, uh, to the work you're doing. You said something about, you always felt fear that you only would have one, pro be able to do one thing. How do you navigate that? How do you manage those those moments of insecurity, those moments of anxiety, uncertainty? I mean, for you personally, how do you deal with all of that? I'm always driven by my curiosity and uh, and self challenge. You know, um, I'm also a runner. You know, I run a lot, and I what I love about running is some days are really hard. Um, some days I decided to run longer, you know, you play all sorts of mental games in order to push your performance and keep you going, especially on the, on the hard days and you make up goals in your mind, you know, you're competing against yourself. You, uh, also learn as a runner, don't judge anyone. You know, if you run, if you run past someone, it doesn't mean you're faster or better because they may have been running for 20 miles and you're on your mm -hmm. first mile. Um, you know, and I, and I, I like a lot of those learnings and think about them also as a, as a builder, you know, I am competing against myself, you know, I've, I've high expectations and it's my own narrative that I'm also building as I, as I, as I continue step-by-step. Step. Recently, we were in Milan recording a series of podcasts for the food minded and uh, one theme, of course, creativity is always the top of the conversation, but uh, was the implementation of AI. Everybody's talking about you like it or not, it's here to stay. Tell me your opinion on, on how do you feel, uh, how AI will change. I mean, 
we know it's going to change tremendously, but the next two to three years, more immediate change in a work environment, what are the things that you're most excited about? Well, AI is going to do a few things that I um, that are going to transform how we work. You know, number one is AI will make us more, all of us, will we will become more creatively confident. We, we probably all typically had our peak creative confidence at the age of five, when everything <laughs> we drew was loved by our teachers and our parents, and we just felt like we were capable yeah. of anything. It made the fridge. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everything everything made the fridge. Um, and then as we got older, we realized, oh, wait, there are people who have greater skills. And, oh, I, my drawings actually aren't so good. And I have to learn. And, and, uh, and then we lose our confidence creatively, sadly, unless we become professionals. And I'm, I love the fact that that's now different. People can, with prompts, any idea you have, you can conjure up as an image, an animation, even a snippet of video. So that's going to transform the landscape of how people express their ideas, how people tell stories in organizations, how students tell stories in their classes. And I generally think that's a good thing. Um, I also think though, that it, it, it raises the bar for those that wanna be really great storytellers. Because if everyone can tell a story, then the people who really stand out are going to have to be even more inventive. And they're going to have to have more soul in their story. I think one thing that AI can't do is build something or create something with a soul. Soul meaning the emotion, the story, the drama that drove this outcome. Um, and, I, and I believe that as humans, we're all going to crave that even more because there's going to be such an abundance of creativity around us and stuff that people are making, we're going to look for like the stuff that really has meaning to it. And that's going to be a human discipline more than ever before. Um, and I think that's going to transform what people do in their jobs. I also think, uh, you know, I've heard a few people cite statistics like 80% of the work of 80% of jobs will be replaced by AI. And so if that's true, what are humans going to be doing in these organizations where robots and algorithms are doing the rest of the work? And my view is that humans are going to be doing more of the things that only humans can do, like discovering best practices and new ideas and doing the non-scalable things that really impact customers, like calling them and talking them through the onboarding of your product, uh, getting feedback writing handwritten notes, you know, to customers who are buying things, building experiences, more people in stores, engaging with customers and helping them. The, the economics will shift so much so that a lot of human capacity will be liberated uh, to do things that computers can now do. And I'm excited about that. And I think it could change, make it more of an experiential economy than ever before. I shared that thought with you. I was recently having a conversation with someone and people talking about storytelling is so important. And I'm like, I get it. It is important. But the more important than that is having an emotional connection, which we're hearing and seeing, to be able to connect that at that level. Now, how the product does that? How would like Adobe, how do Adobe will connect emotionally with your customers? Well, I think that there's a emotion. People feel emotional about a product when a product was built with emotion. So 
when you're building a product and you put in fun things or you talk candidly to the customer through the copy in the product and you're whimsical and you um, and you're empathetic, you know, by having great capabilities to help them when they're struggling. Like those are the types of things that a team that feels empathy create a product that breeds emotional response. I've always felt like when you use a product, you can tell a lot about the team behind it and the history. When you use Photoshop, <clears throat> you can tell that there's 40 years of code and that this was a product that was really ultimately made for professionals in the early days, right? Um, some products you use, you can tell that the copywriting is being done by a different team than the team that's making the product because it feels disjointed. Uh, I, I think that that's one of the opportunities in modern product development is to start to collapse some of these functions and help the customer feel like the product experience was made with people who are thinking fully about the customer's problems and challenges and, you know, and, and our, the team is integrated and then the product feels more integrated. I think those are, those are some of the things we're trying to do at Adobe to improve our product experiences. So much good information over here, but I know you have to go, but before I let you go, usually I ask every single guest to give us uh, uh, three recommendations. Uh, one book, a book to read, uh, something to watch, uh, could be a movie, a TV show, something that interests you, and who should we have here as a guest in upcoming episodes? <laughs> oh, goodness. Um... I don't know. Uh, well, I, I would say one book that I am reading and that I'm really enjoying is called The Ministry of the Future. And it's a novel about the impact of climate change that makes it feel really real and, uh, and also helps us understand the implications behind it. I'm very into implications. Um, I started a newsletter called Implications you know, I, I think that as technologists, we need to be not just creative about what can go right, but also what can go wrong. And so, uh, so that's, you know, something that drives a lot of my reading habits these days. I'd recommend that book. Um, something to watch. I, um, I, I always love these sort of Cosmos-like documentaries on Netflix that kind of help you understand the universe at scale. I think that it's very grounding and also there's hidden principles for how the universe works that are very relevant for how we work. And I think that the more we study the awe and nature of the universe, the more we kind of get insight into, into ourselves. Um, and then as for a guest, I mean, I think that would be an interesting topic to just explore Neil deGrasse Tyson and like how the yeah. universe you know, gives us clues into how we work. So I guess he'd be my recommendation. <laughs> Scott, thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate it. But before you go, please let us know where we can get uh, more about your work. I know the book, where we can find it, the newsletter. Do a little plug over here so we can find it, be in touch with you. Yeah, sure. No, thanks for asking. So the two books we did discuss are Making Ideas Happen and The Messy Middle. And they were really written over a 10-year period to cover different parts of the journey of pushing ideas to fruition. And uh, my writing is all at implications.com. So implications.com is, is my newsletter. And follow me at, uh, I'm at Scott Belsky at your social network of choice. 
Terrific. All right, Scott, thanks again. Have a wonderful day and stay in touch. Thanks, Jerry. Thanks for having me.